Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me as always. Uh, this is Freedom Hut DC edition. So... I am returning uh, to my old stomping ground for a, well, for a, a quick trip here in which I will be making the, making the rounds, uh, spending a little time over with my friends at Fox News and also catching up with some of my uh, former associates uh, and friends in the D.C. area. So um, great to have you with me here today. Uh, one of these days where... The media narrative has just been completely flipped on its head, right? We went into this, and he, here's, the, here's the basics as of this morning. Oh, my gosh, there's a civil war within the GOP. Nothing's ever going to get done because Trump is just so terrible and is so incapable, just utterly incapable of, of governing the, uh, and, and being a leader of the Republican Party that's what we were hearing this morning. Right? That's what the, the mainstream Democrat media was going with. And then you have a turnabout as of uh, early this afternoon where all of a sudden the president is giving a speech and he's out there with Mitch McConnell and uh, Trump is willing to uh, make it seem like all of a sudden bygones are bygones. Here's what President Trump had to say. Uh, let's play clip six, please. We are probably now, despite what we read, we're probably now, I think, at least as far as I'm concerned, closer than ever before. And uh, the relationship is very good. We're fighting for the same thing. My relationship with this gentleman is outstanding, has been outstanding. We are working very hard to get the tax cuts. We will continue to work hard to get the health care completed. He says that it's all going to be okay. He's working with McConnell. I, I, I was seeing headlines about and editorials about the GOP civil war over the weekend. And now you have the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell out there with Trump. And they are standing shoulder to shoulder talking about the future now is some is this at some level theatrics is this for the optics is this president trump seizing the moment here to keep his political opposition off balance and to show that he is unpredictable well of course but it is noteworthy that at a moment in time when it seems like there is such a fracture within the Republican Party, Trump is opening the door to cooperation with the very peak of the GOP establishment. And Trump is even willing to go out and say that this is a unified party. So he is single-handedly 
attempting to shift the narrative right now with this press conference earlier today, or with this press conference and meeting with Mitch McConnell earlier today. Here's what he said about unity within the party. Play clip eight. Just so you understand, the Republican Party is very, very unified. When we get things approved, we have to go through hell because we have no Democrat support. We have nobody. We don't have a vote from the Democrats. As an example, massive tax cuts. We may not get any Democrat votes. Now, we also may get three or four. So he's saying, look, we've got to keep this all in perspective. Yes, there have been some disappointing moments with the Democrats uh, as well. Well, with the Republicans, first and foremost, on health care. But also it should be kept in mind that the Democrats have not been willing to be even a little bit bipartisan, even the the slightest bit reasonable on, on any of this. But you can imagine today for the and I'm here, I'm, I'm inside the beltway, right? I'm actually close to the belly of the beast. I, I just want to go and wander K Street and take a look at all the, the lobbyists and the donor class and their fancy martini lunches and all the rest of it. Right now I'm doing field research on the, uh, the powers that be inside of D.C. But the storyline has changed very dramatically because uh, Trump is out there saying that the Republican Party can still get things done that it's not too late, that the agenda is by no means dead. In fact, the agenda is alive and well. And maybe the GOP establishment needed a wake-up call. Perhaps they've gotten it now. I, I think this is an important part of the discussion that often gets left out of this. If Trump was going to be a disruptive president, if the plan here all along was that he would be essentially a an outsider who would not just shake up the overall political ecosystem of D.C., but that would specifically force the Republican Party to either be what they say or be what it says it wants to be or else betray the base. Trump is moving in that direction. He is clarifying the debate and the discussion. He's doing it in an unconventional way. We'll have... Uh, a little sound for you later on Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who's saying, can we stop? I mean, I'm paraphrasing Rex now. Uh, but can we stop this? Oh, he doesn't he doesn't sound like other presidents. It doesn't sound presidential. I don't like the way the president talked about this or that issue. Of course, he doesn't sound like other presidents. That is not in the least surprising. In fact, it would be a shock if he if he did sound like other presidents before him. And what did they give us, I should note? Stretching back now for decades in a bipartisan way, what did we get? More and more spending, bigger and bigger debt, borders that will not be secured, and that both Republicans and Democrats inside the Beltway have been lying about. They've been lying about the realities of the border. Not all of them, but a lot of Republicans have. All the Democrats have. And they have been lying about what they would like to do about it. And this is why this moment with the administration of pushing issues onto Congress's plate is so profound. It's it's so important. Now we get to see whether it's immigration, where you have uh, the Democrats who are clearly in favor of an amnesty for DACA, 
Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. There was supposed to be a deal with Trump, but now we have found out there was actually no deal per se. There was just a, the, the rough outline, a, a vague agreement that will, won't mean anything. And the, the Congress, the Republican-led Congress, is going to have to be in charge of doing something about all this. Right? They, they can pass legislation, but it is their prerogative. One of the ironies, I, I believe, of the Trump administration so far is that on immigration, on the Iran deal, uh, on health care, these are all places where Trump, no matter what you think of this White House and this commander in chief, Trump has restored some degree of the separation of powers that was violated by his predecessors and most notably by Barack Obama who wasn't willing to challenge his own party, in fact, just ran roughshod over the opposition, uh, browbeat them, pushed them into submission whenever possible, and claimed whenever there was the slightest ideological opposition to his plans, that it was rooted in bad faith, that it wasn't a debate over the merits of one plan or another, but that the Republicans didn't like old people, didn't like sick people, poor people, minorities, it was rooted in their antipathy, in their, in their disdain. That's why they were opposing Obama's plans and policies, not because they thought that maybe there was something better out there for the American people. And that's how we got to the pen and the phone. Right? This is how we got to an imperial presidency, one that even some Democrats were willing to say during the Obama years that he is going too far. We have had from the beginning, from the origins of this administration, we have had many on the left and most of the media saying that Trump is a tyrant in waiting, that Trump is a creeping form of American fascism. I mean, this is not this is beyond hyperbole. This is just dangerous and destructive dishonesty about the administration. And yet now we see what. Trump is willing to do what he actually does. And it is more respectful of the separation of powers. It's more respectful of the constitutional prerogative of the legislative branch than his predecessor so far by leaps and bounds. Let's see what Congress comes up with on health care. Let's see what Congress comes up with on name the issue, name the major policy issue now, immigration, the Iran deal. These are areas where Obama did not have the authority that he usurped for himself from the Congress. Trump is trying to restore some balance to that constitutional separation. Whether, he, whether that's his purpose, you know, whether that's his intention or not, it is the reality. And now he's saying that we should get tax reform done. It will help the middle class. He's out there selling his plan and he's standing next to Mitch McConnell. Who cares about the petty Squabbles. Who cares about the high school rumor mongering that most of the media is engaged in when it comes to this White House? Let's get some stuff done for the American people. Let's see what these elected members of Congress can do. Let's see what the Republican Party will get done. And at that point, we can make a judgment about whether or not Trump is uh, following through on his agenda. Once we've seen what gets put on his desk and what he will or will not sign, 
then we'll have a better understanding or at least a better place from which to judge. How is Trumpism working out? Right now, Trumpism is, hold on a second, I'm the commander-in-chief. I appoint a Supreme Court justice, for example, through, and it has to get through the Senate, but I can deal with regulations as the commander-in-chief. I can do executive orders to undo previous bad executive orders of the Obama administration. But legislation comes from Congress. The promises that I made, being Trump now, I'm, I'm channeling Trump for a moment, the promises that Trump made for them to be followed through on It has to be the Congress that does it. It can't be Trump single-handedly. We saw what that was like with the previous administration, and it didn't get very far, and the courts had to say, hold on a second. I don't think so, President Obama. Now we will see what Mitch McConnell's move is here. But we went into the weekend being told that it was all over between Trump and the Senate, and now here we are wondering what magic, if any, Mitch McConnell can uh, make happen as the Senate Majority Leader, with Trump at his side saying they have a great relationship. Whether they do or not, who cares? Let's see what the policies are. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Freedom Hut Washington, D.C. edition here is uh, well underway. Give me a ring, and we'll be right back. Why is oh, she I hope not- Hillary runs. Is she going to run? I hope. Hillary, please run again. Go ahead. There you have... Uh, President Trump earlier today talking about how he he hopes he hopes that uh, Hillary would indeed run again. I can't believe that this is even seriously under discussion in any way. I, I have a hard time imagining that anybody would really. But you know what? The political scene is so crazy right now. And so much unpredictability seems to be the order of the day or the order of the era, really, not the day. That who knows? Hillary is so power mad that even though the Democrat Party, one would think, had uh, would have moved on from her as a prospect for president, what's their other option? Bernie Sanders? What do you mean? I'm not the wall. Put me in the game, coach. I'll get it done. I, I just don't see who the, uh, the front runner is for the next Democrat uh, go at the presidency. I've... Been seeing the early stage efforts for Kamala Harris, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but you know, Hillary's out, there, but, but maybe, you know, maybe the media is very powerful and she has uh, some charisma that they, I'm sure, would be able to build into a, a national political campaign. But I was trying to, I was, what is the most, what is the most accurate description of the political fortunes of the Democrat Party right now? Uncertain. That's one way to go. Uh, you have Hillary Clinton, though, out there speaking. And I think to to borrow from uh, from Steve Bannon, who's also making a lot of waves these days, you know, when he said that the more NFL players kneel, the more culture war stuff. I'm paraphrasing here, but the more culture war stuff, the better for Trump and the administration and the futures of the future of the Republican Party right now. I think that's true. The more Hillary we can get out there, the more we can point to her with what happened and all that stuff, uh, the better for Trump's fortunes right now. Hillary is a, in my opinion, a running campaign ad for Trump 2020 at this point. It will just continue to be much of what we've already seen, which is her blaming everybody. And uh, and she'll even go out there and 
try and trash the president. She she won't go out with dignity as a woman that could now do anything. She's worth over a hundred million dollars, and but she won't go out in a dignified fashion as a former presidential contender. She she wants to now be a big voice in the discussion. I think Hillary's positioning herself not for another run. That's just I'd like to say it's crazy, but. You know, this is not we're in never say never territory with the Clintons. I think you could say that about our politics in general right now. Uh, But with Hillary, she wants the role of kingmaker in the Democrat Party, at least. That's a way to maintain relevancy and attention. As I've said before, I think she has something of a hole in her soul. I don't know her as a person, but based on her actions in public, the notion of not being a famous, powerful political figure is just too much for Hillary Clinton to bear. Right? There's no – I saw that she might take a, a teaching job at Columbia University, and I joked around that what's she going to teach? Cybersecurity 101? Hey-oh! Uh, but that's not going to be enough for her. Other presidential candidates, I think, might be willing to settle for – not that teaching at teaching Columbia sounds like fun, actually. I would love to teach. But I'm also not a power-mad megalomaniac, and I think Hillary is. But when she comes out and says these things, it is helpful to Trump, I think, to hear from Hillary. And she was even willing to go on these Sunday shows and compare Trump to Weinstein. Play clip two, please. This kind of behavior cannot be tolerated anywhere, whether it's in entertainment, politics. After all, we have someone admitting to being a sexual assaulter in the Oval Office. That's a lie. Now, Trump is a public figure, so there's a, a there's a very high bar for slander when you're dealing with a public figure. And w- what she's doing is she's referring to that video that NBC released. Oh, remember NBC? They're the ones who sat on the Weinstein revelations because he's an incredibly powerful Democrat and suppressed stories about Weinstein. But somehow a 10 year old tape of Trump on a bus, they were able to find that and go with that real fast. I think we all know what's going on there. But Hillary's just dishonest and she's a hack. And saying that Trump has admitted to sexual assault is to say that Trump has admitted to a crime, which he has never done. He has absolutely never admitted to a crime. He, in locker room talk fashion, said that he could be very aggressive sometimes with women. He never said they were non-consenting. He's just never said that. He's never admitted to any crime whatsoever. So Hillary saying that is a lie is a lie. But you know what? She's a Clinton. So lying is something that she excels at. All right, we've got more, including the Rex Tillerson uh, question thrown at him over the weekend. That You're just going to have to hear it to believe it. So stay with me, and we'll be right back. friend of yours, he has tremendous respect for you. He speaks highly of you all the time. He says that you're one of the best things about the cabinet, and he's dismayed. He thinks President Trump is constantly undermining you. This is a Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He said that the president has, quote, castrated you before the world stage. That's his word, not mine. What's your response to that? Well, as as I indicated earlier, Jake, I think this is an unconventional president. He uses unconventional communication tools. He uses unconventional techniques to motivate change. And for people that have been around Washington a long time, this is a place that you know better than I. You've been here longer than I have. This is not a place that likes to change. It, It actually enjoys the status quo. The last thing anyone likes to do in this town is make a decision. Because when you make a decision, you're suddenly accountable for that decision. True. And so the president is 
is out trying to motivate people to change, whether it's on health care, whether it's executive action he recently took to motivate that change, whether it's on executive orders around immigration to motivate that change, or whether it's under the action he took under the Iran deal on the Friday. It's to motivate a change. People in this town get very uh, nervous and get very uptight about having to address serious issues by making decisions. And so the, the president is simply trying to do that in his very unique style, and he is very unique. I don't think there's any doubt that anyone sees him as anything other than the most unique president we've certainly ever seen in modern history that we can we have recorded history of. Hard to dispute that. But again, I would say I am fully committed to his objectives. I agree with his objectives. I agree with what he's trying to do. How he wants to use his own skills tactically to push things toward change, I'm there to help him achieve those. That's all. You, you're a cattle. You have a cattle ranch. You don't want to say anything about uh, the Senate, senator uh, calling, suggesting you've been gelded before the world. And that's not anything that bothers you. I checked. I'm fully intact. <laughs> Listen to the kind of stuff that Big J Journalism, uh, CNN, and, and Jake Tapper ask the sitting Secretary of State. You know, to, to pose the question once to ask him about. Corker and to, to say to him, hey, hold, hold on a second. You know, this was said, OK, maybe because you're talking about a you're talking about a sitting senator and there's some beef between the, the president and the senator right now, uh, Senator Corker. And I understand that they're going to run with that as a story. I, I think they're obviously inflating it, but they're also uh, clearly relying on the fact that Corker has some kind of feud going on with Trump to just take cheap shots at the administration and to, but to ask him twice you know can you refer specifically to the the allegation of castration it's just meant to be demeaning it's just wrong and this brings me to how i mean the reason that people who support trump are willing to support him even after he says things that are supposed to be unpresidential or even in moments where his uh shall we say, non-traditional approach to the presidency might seem like it's causing some issues or some problems. Uh, the reason is because we know that the other side will do anything to undermine him. And so you want to give the president more leeway because he's not getting any leeway at all from journalists on anything. And that includes to the people around him as well. You know, Tillerson, the secretary of state, would really like to have a much more in-depth and serious discussion with uh, any CNN journalist or anybody else about the Iran deal and about what's going on. But you'll notice that there's such a focus on the petty uh, palace intrigue stuff. They want to make this more like a high school uh, gossip situation than discussing matters of state and, and incredibly important national security concerns for the United States. It's, they can't have it both ways. On the one hand, they'll say that Trump is so unpresidential. And on the other hand, they will level such unpresidential uh, or rather unjournalistic uh, attacks against him that, that are clearly meant to be part of a propaganda machine to undermine the president, that are clearly meant to uh, make people think that this administration is uh, completely incompetent and has no ethics. And it's not enough to oppose Trump's policies or his agenda. Uh, they want to ridicule the president and everybody around him. 
And that means that those of us who see it for what it is say, you know what, I'm just I'm just not playing that game. I just don't want to be uh, a part of that. I don't want to allow them to get away with it. On top of the fact that I think that the administration's policies, if enacted, would be really good for the country. And I think that and I think that President Trump has much keener political instincts than a lot of Republicans, very prominent Republicans who, in my mind, seem like they're still so fixed on whether they can get the Beltway and coastal media to just say something nice about them. Trump doesn't care about that. And when we see things like the Secretary of State being asked multiple times on national TV, have you, do you have a, a comment on whether you have been castrated, uh, that makes the rest of us double down and say, okay, so, so this is the game they're playing. And we've known this for a while. But it's another instance of it. It shows us what they're really up to, and it shows us uh, how they plan to continue to try and and oppose Trump and and all things that are uh, all people around him and all things that are tied to his administration. The the Iran deal, they would like to, I mean, the journalists would, would like to convince people that everything is terrible and that the Iran deal is it's been scrapped and because it's scrapped now these horrible things are going to happen to us but no in fact we're not even out of the deal how much of a freak out can they have because we're not even separated from the iran deal i think a large part of this is for journalists who were part of the or who were covering the obama administration they felt like they were part of the administration and this you can't cast this aside. You've got to keep this in mind whenever we're talking about how the media describes Trump and how they're reacting to his policies. The uh, national media, the Democrat media, was not just favorable towards the Obama administration, but they had a belief that they were a part of it, meaning that Obama's election and Obama's success was a great endeavor to which they personally journalists they personally contributed to it in many cases i'm sure financially too we look at who journalists give money to but i mean that their efforts their work product was a part of the elevation of and in their minds the success of the eight years of the obama administration because on the merits to be so uh, upset about the iran deal right now is to ignore what has happened and what has not happened with the iran deal The truth of the matter is that this is now just going to be further negotiated and litigated and dealt with by people who have expertise on nuclear policy and who have expertise on in diplomacy. And and they're going to be handling these matters for the Trump administration with an eye toward making sure that Iran does not ever have a a clear pathway to a nuclear weapon and also that Iran isn't able to just get away with all kinds of uh, destructive and destabilizing behavior in the meantime. You know, the Obama administration was so desperate to get an Iran deal done that it meant that their Syria policy was completely ineffective. They were so desperate to get a deal done that we had plane loads full of cash arriving in Iran in exchange for hostages 
And I was on CNN when that happened or when we were talking about it, I should say. I was on CNN and everyone was looking at me like I'm crazy because I said, when you have an exchange of prisoners for cash, that is a hostage situation. You can call it whatever you want. You can say that this is a, a, a magical super diplomacy moment, but when you're exchanging cash for people who have been imprisoned for no reason and are being held merely because they are citizens of another country, that is a hostage situation. And giving that money to the greatest state sponsor of terror in the world means that you are paying terrorists for hostages, which is what Obama did. They can try and spin in a million different ways, but that is what happened. That's the reality. And now we see that any adjustments to the Iran deal, even if they're minor or even if they have not yet been fully implemented, media will oppose it because it's such a part of Obama's legacy. And that should be pretty frightening to many of us, that when you're talking about uh, nuclear weapons and a rogue terrorist state trying to get nuclear weapons, the first concern, and with no change in its belligerent behavior in the Mideast, by the way, it's actually just gotten worse. They're still yelling death to America, still yelling death to Israel in the streets of Tehran. But for many who are supposed to be educating the American public about this circumstance, the first thing that comes to their mind is not, oh, wait, maybe we should not have, uh, maybe we should not have been putting our thumbs on the scale for the Obama administration. Maybe we should just tell the public the truth and nothing but the truth about what's happening with this deal and what's not happening with this deal. Their impulse is circle the wagons, defend the Obama administration, find a way to make this early stage change in the Iran deal from the Trump administration seem like it's just beyond the pale. This is just absolutely crazy. And on top of that, find a way to ridicule Trump's secretary of state. You know, that Corker would that Corker would undermine the administration, the secretary of state in such a, a childish way is much more a function or, or, or speaks much more to his lack of character and lack of temperament than anything having to do with this White House right now and their foreign policy. I mean, secretary Corker, I mean, pardon me, uh, Senator Corker, should be embarrassed. Uh, he, he should feel like, wow, that was really that was really out of line. You know, he can say that Tillerson has been sidelined. There's a lot of things he could say. But to say he's been castrated is meant to get headlines. It's meant to get attention. And it is meant to not just undermine, but ridicule the administration at a time when there are major national security and diplomatic challenges, North Korea, Iran and others that we have at the level we have them, I mean, they're as bad as they are because of eight years of a feckless Obama administration that just didn't have a vision and didn't have the strength of character or the courage of its convictions to make hard choices, to do difficult things in the realm of diplomacy and national security. Uh, you know, the Obama administration was first and foremost about how was this going to play on the evening news, on the national broadcasts, and how can we pat ourselves on the back for being so brilliant, so amazing, and so awesome. And as we see, the results of this are near catastrophic in a number of places around the world. And now the Trump administration has to clean up the mess. And that mess is 
important for all of us to be cleaned up. It's not just a partisan thing, but the media, as always, is being hyper-partisan about it and going after the Secretary of State and reporting on all this like a bunch of high school girls instead of doing what they say they do, which is keep us all informed of what is happening in a nonpartisan way, which is laughable. We will be uh, back in just a few teams. Stay with me. Democrats have terrible policy, terrible, and they're very good at really obstruction. And one thing they do well, their policy is no good, and I'm not even sure they're very good politicians because they don't seem to be doing too well. That could be because of their bad policy. But they're great at obstruction. They're great at obstruction, the president says. They're, they're great at, at that. And he says they, they're bad on, on foreign policy in, in particular. Um, I think that's fair to say. Uh, but the notion of Democrats as obstructionists, I, I just have to revisit for a second how, you know, for, for years, and we're going to be talking about media dishonesty coming up here in a few minutes, but for, for years, uh, we, all we heard from Obama was how the Republicans are obstructionist, how the Republicans are terrible and... Uh, they won't work with him on things, and, and that's all we heard. It was never, hey, maybe I could try to find some middle ground with the Republicans. It was never, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we try to find a, a path that they can actually get on board with, too, for the benefit of the American people? And you had all of these journalists out there, and so many people on the left, and Democrats, and Chuck Schumer, and you know all the rest of them, Nancy Pelosi, you know, they were saying time and time again that the Republicans, all they do is obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. That was the narrative. That was what you would hear from the left. And then, finally, when the Republicans come in, take the House, take the Senate, and now the presidency, you see in the, in the other direction that obstruction is now great, that, that hashtag resistance is just all well and good. It's fine. It's fantastic, in fact. That whatever that they whatever they can do to stand in the way of Trump making progress on his agenda is is almost a holy duty for the Democrats. They would never think of it as holy, of course. They don't like that notion. This is perhaps a, a time when we could get into a discussion of the state in place of God for Democrats, which statism at its core, collectivism, statism, the underlying ideology of the Democrat Party. And this is why there's also such a connection with the psychology of the left in this country to climate change is something in place of the almighty. This is how you could have Chuck Todd, who's supposed to be a political wonk just in the last few weeks, saying, hey, uh, this notion of natural rights as coming from some higher power, that's just ridiculous. That's that's foolishness. Uh no, actually, that's that is the whole that is the whole founding thing that we've got going on in this country. That is how it was. That is the natural law, natural rights, and uh, the rights that we have that government is to protect, not that government creates. The rights predate government. That's why they are rights, not gifts, not presents, not something that the government just hands to us. But the dishonesty that has been on display with the way that Democrats have been talking about Trump's recent uh, executive actions, uh, their attempts to create more palace, not just palace intrigue, palace infighting within the White House 
to slow down the administration and the complete reversal of the notion of a government that must do things. Right? That's, that's central to all this. The government has to accomplish stuff. This is what they were telling us. The government must figure some things out and do them. It's not enough for the government just to exist and continue with status quo. Progressives were pushing so hard on all of these points before. And now here we are with Republicans in power and grinding everything to a halt is okay. Forcing everything to come to a near complete stop if they can. That's what they would like to accomplish. And uh, by the way, there's a lot of excuses that you get. And Trump mentioned this as well. Play clip nine about Russia. If it would help you, if it would help special counsel Robert Mueller get to the end of the Russia investigation. Well, I'd like to see it end. Look, the whole Russian thing was an excuse. Excuse me. Excuse me. The whole Russian thing was an excuse for the Democrats losing the election. And it turns out to be just one excuse. I mean, today, Hillary blamed Nigel Farage. That one came out of nowhere. So that was just an excuse for the Democrats losing an election. Absolutely. It was just an excuse. Obstruction, excuses underhanded tactics that's what the democrats excel at my friends i want to talk to you about the uh, kurdish independence movement we'll get into that coming up here and uh, much more so stay with me team you are now entering the freedom hunt tactical operations center all sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know team buck is cleared roger that and ready for the buck brief Tensions escalating in Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Here's the latest from the Washington Post. Iraqi forces said Monday they seized a military base, an oil field, and other key infrastructure from Kurdish soldiers near the northern city of Kirkuk as the two U.S. allies face off over territory and oil in the wake of the Kurdish region's independence vote last month. Clashes broke out despite an order from Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi for his troops to avoid violence. Iraqi forces advanced into the contested province with the goal of returning to positions they held before 2014 when they fled in the face of an Islamic State push. The positions had since been taken over by Kurdish troops. Uh, You will recall, team, that on this show I have been talking to you in recent weeks about the Uh, flashpoint that is Kurdish uh, separatism and the possibility of Kurdish independence in Iraq. And here we see that this puts Kurdish forces or Peshmerga into possible military conflict with Iraqi government forces, uh, which would be disastrous if it were to spiral into a bigger conflict, right? If you had the start of a Kurdish Uh, Arab-Iraqi civil war, it would be devastating, especially because, well, for uh, many, many reasons, but you also have a fight against the Islamic State that is ongoing in Iraq right now. The uh, ISIS militants still control Hawija. Uh, They still have some areas, some smaller towns that they have uh, continued to hold under their grip. And so... I just hope that they're able to push back and find a way uh, to walk back from the brink here and and not get into a shooting war. I feel for the Kurdish people. I really do. I I think that Kurdistan would be a a, look. I think it would be a great country. I think it'd be a place 
that you would want to visit, maybe, uh, as opposed to a lot of the other stuff in that neighborhood of the Middle East. And it seems to me that there's just an, an inherent unfairness with the Kurdish people being told that they cannot form their own uh, form their own state. You know, we are a country that should have a lot of sympathy for people who, through a democratic process, decide that they want to vote and uh, form their own political entity, their own polity. And the Kurds have their own culture, their own language, their own ethnicity, and they have been stalwart allies when we really needed them. And many of you listening, I know, have, have written to me about this and know exactly what I'm talking about. In the darkest days of the Iraq war, when the U.S. had 150,000 plus troops on the ground and the uh, insurgency was just raging, we could count on the Kurds. Uh, we could count on them to keep their area quiet and to be a, a ground force that would actually fight at a time when there were a lot of newly conscripted or newly hired, uh, newly enlisted units in the Iraqi police and military that would just lay down arms and would want no part of doing what they had said they wanted to do. Uh, the, the Kurds, the Peshmerga in particular, they, they would stand and fight and they would do their part for their country. And they don't want to be. And, and this is where you see the problems of our Iran deal and our uh, previous eight years of Obama posture towards the Middle East. The Kurds don't want to be a uh, state that is run by a client state of the Iranians. And that's what's happening right now. At least in their minds, you have Iran right next door, which is exerting more and more influence on the Shia majority Baghdad government, uh, the government that is controlled by uh, Shia Arabs, and they just don't want any part of it. And they don't want the Iranians to be the ones that are calling the shots in their country. And this is one of the, uh, unfortunately, one of the really uh, destructive legacies of intervention and, and toppling Saddam is that now the Iranians have a pretty clear path to at least political domination of Iraq. And that is uh, critical for the Iranians if they want to be the regional power that they aspire to be. So they no longer have a, uh, an Iraq on their border that is a check on Iranian ambitions. Really, the Iraq government that currently exists is largely a puppet, a client of uh, that government. So that's problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think, to be fair, this is one of those moments where U.S. rhetoric on, well, the right of people to self-govern, and it starts to run into the realities of politics and, and our interests in different regions of the world, because the, we are not supporting this Kurdish referendum, not because of any... Uh, problem we have with the Kurds. We are not uh, opposing this Kurdish push for independence because of some belief that we have that this would be terrible for the Kurdish people. It's because the Iraqis don't want it, and we've just fought a very expensive, difficult war in blood and treasure in Iraq, and we've just helped oust the Islamic State 
from Iraq. We have quite an investment in that country in national security and great power terms. We have decided that we are uh, very much a part of Iraq's future. And the Iraqi government doesn't want this. And we fear, as we look right now at the posturing of forces on both sides in Iraq, we fear the possibility of an actual military exchange, which is a polite way of saying that they start shooting each other. And that would be uh, a, a terrible turn of events in, this country, in, in Iraq at, at that point in time. But we also oppose it because the Kurds don't, I mean, the, the Turks don't, the Turks don't want it, and they're a major NATO ally. They uh, provide military assistance to us in Afghanistan, and, and they are a country that we don't want to particularly upset. There's also the optics of the only Muslim member state of NATO that has a major army, Albania. For those of you who don't know this, Albania is actually a Yes, Albania is a, a small state in Eastern Europe that is uh, very pro-U.S., I should note, and is a Muslim majority. Uh, but the Albanian military is not large enough to play a particularly big role in any of our military operations abroad. Uh, but Turkey's is, and Turkey is the most visible. Uh, how many people even know that Albania is a Muslim majority state, for example? I think it's very, very few. Uh, Turkey, though, I think everybody kind of knows is a Muslim country. So uh, that means that if we were to run afoul of Turkey, there would be other problems with how that would look. And we are in a position where once again, and it would not be the first time, it would be actually a few times into our relationship with the Kurds. Uh, once again, we would be kind of leaving them high and dry. Um, they hopefully will figure out a way to uh, settle this with the Iraqi government that is to their liking for now. But they want to have their own country. And there should be a means of coming up with a uh, revenue sharing agreement with the oil fields, something, you know, it's not a huge portion of Iraq's uh, oil revenue that flows through Kirkuk and the surrounding areas. It's something in the, in the neighborhood of, I think, 10 percent. So they could figure this out. Uh, but when it comes to resources, federal governments become uh, very stingy and very protective. So this is, as I've been saying, the most likely spot in the Mideast for a new conflict to break out. And it would be a, an intra-war. It would be a civil war within the Iraqi state. I don't think that's going to happen because the Kurds don't want to be shooting at their uh, allies and friends in the Iraqi uh, national military. But it's, it's tense, as you can imagine. As I started out this segment, when you have... Uh, Iraqi military seizing oil fields and I'm sure they have they have orders that they're not just going to back off if Peshmerga show up and say actually these are our, our oil fields this is how uh, miscalculation turns into something really ugly and I would like to see some more leadership on the U.S. side here not just to say let's defuse things but also let's come up with a workable agreement for the future I'm sure U.S. military uh, advisors on the ground in Iraq are working on this feverishly, and I just would like to see what the end strategy is. But I keep repeating this point because I really believe it. I think we do owe the Kurds something, and we need to keep that in mind because America has to be a country that uh, remembers its obligations to its allies and, and pays its debts to others. 
All right, we'll be right back with more. Stay with me. Oh, yeah, more on Jimmy Kimmel, everybody. I know, we're we're making a a hard turn here from national security for a second, but Jimmy Kimmel is a, (laughs) like I'm about to explain to you who Jimmy Kimmel is. In In case you didn't know, Jimmy Kimmel is a late night comedian who has thrust himself into the the center of some political debates, uh, most notably the healthcare debate, which he was appointed to by the media overall as the source of both emotional wisdom as well as policy wisdom on healthcare. And anybody who wanted to do away with Obamacare, anybody out there who had the temerity to challenge this uh, Jimmy Kimmel wisdom found themselves in a position where all of a sudden they weren't just wrong on the facts. They were a bad they were a bad person. This is the that was the magic of of Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, And now now I know it's not actually magic, but you know what I mean? That was why he was so useful at the time. But things have become a little more complicated because Kimmel didn't want to have didn't want to say all that much about Harvey Weinstein. And then it came out that Jimmy Kimmel himself said that he does not hold himself up as the 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 conscience of America, even though I saw I think it was on CNN.com. No surprise here that Jimmy Kimmel, we should think of as the conscience of America. Uh, But then it became, well, actually, with the Weinstein stuff, maybe he's not. And of course, he has never been. He's an entertainer. But we are in an, we are in a time now where entertainers are more powerful than ever before because there are more ways for them to reach the masses. And politics now has, well, it's always been a, a battle of propaganda, right? I mean, if you, if you want to get a little cynical about it, it's competing narratives meant to achieve a certain goal. That is what politics is. And we've been hearing about health care for a long time from Democrats. They've been putting forward people that have been making emotional appeals. But it's only somebody like a Jimmy Kimmel who has a TV presence, a huge social media following. And he becomes, for those who are not particularly politically aware, but like to think of themselves as good people, he becomes the, the source of wisdom and information on the health care debate. Right. That's what that's what was happening a few weeks ago. And he had a tearful monologue. I should know before that, the only time I had seen Kimmel tear up was when Cecil the lion or was it Cecil? Uh, the lion was shot in Africa and he was very teary eyed in the monologue about that. But then in, in like he was talking about health care and why is it effective? Because he's liked because he's a comedian and because he told a very compelling story that any person of goodwill and, and any person with uh, the most basic human feeling sympathizes with him, which is that he had a sick child. But having a sick child is not the grounds for healthcare expertise on an incredibly complicated problem. And on top of that, saying that people who disagree with you are bullies or liars, you know, Kimmel went after, he went after Republicans on this one uh, for disagreeing with him on healthcare. And now he's 
doesn't want to say much on Weinstein, so he's, well, not really the moral conscience anymore. On health care, he was, and then they move off from that and say, oh, actually, he's not anymore. And then you can add on to all of this that he doesn't care if Republicans stop watching him. This is something a little different in this current uh, moment in time. This is something that separates our political and media environment from what has come before. Now you have, whether it's Eminem, who just, what was it, last week had his his uh, rap battle against the administration or whatever it was, uh, saying that if you support Trump, expletive, expletive, and go expletive, and you know he, he doesn't want you buying his records anymore. And this is, I suppose, going to... Uh, work out for him in the long run because it's just about getting attention for his new album. And I know plenty of Republicans who can separate out. I know plenty of conservatives who will say, okay, just because somebody has really bad politics and they annoy me politically, it does not mean that I won't appreciate their art anymore, that I will somehow uh, separate myself from enjoying what they're actually supposed to do. Although the NFL has started to challenge. I I know there are exceptions. But with Kimmel saying that he wouldn't even want to have a conversation with the Republicans that might stop watching his show. This is the latest. This came out just in the last few days. Might stop watching his show because of his politics. I just think it's so uh, nasty. It's really unkind to take the position, the one that Kimmel takes on this, that to disagree with him on this is to be not just somebody who's wrong, but somebody who's beneath contempt for him, not worth talking to. If healthcare, and I feel this way about climate change and healthcare and, and a whole bunch of issues that are overly emotionalized by the left, if they were if it was really so important to get it right, wouldn't the focus be on uh, promoting a better understanding of the issue and to try and convince people to come to your side. If Jimmy Kimmel were serious about health care reform in this country, and dare I say, if the NFL players taking a knee were serious about police reform in this country, and some of them have taken this, to be fair, some of them have taken this approach more recently. They are meeting with, and I don't want to skip over that, they have met with police and community leaders. They're taking action, not just deciding to draw attention to themselves. But absent that, for anyone else who's out there who thinks that they are an activist, they are, quote, woke, right, which means socially, uh, uh, social justice aware is how I define woke. Why not try to create converts instead of hunting for heretics? Someone like Jimmy Kimmel with a sense of humor and a huge platform, why not make jokes that all Americans can laugh about when it comes to our healthcare system And then try to educate a little and bring some who have an open mind over to his side. Now, I know a lot of you are yelling, Buck, the facts aren't on his side, so he could never do this. But he's not even making the effort. And I think that tells us a lot. He's not even trying to reach the other side. He is shutting it down. And this is something that we see on college campuses now. We see it in the media. They want to stop the exchange of ideas, unless you sign on for their ideas. And with the entertainment industry and its current disarray because of the recent Weinstein revelations, we know that they don't have any moral authority 
So maybe they should use whatever gifts in Hollywood and late night comedians and musicians and professional athletes, the gifts they do possess, perhaps they could strive for unity among all of us and promoting greater understanding and common ground before deciding to push the schism even further, to, to double down, to harden the ossification of our political beliefs. Kimmel's not the conscience of America, but he could at least try to be a nice guy to everybody. How about that? Revolutionary idea, I know. All right, team, much more coming. Stay with me. Now, I know this is kind of a a small story in the grand scheme of things, but I think it actually has really big implications. Uh, Journalism has been sucker punched recently by the truth. Uh, Journalists are no longer able to hide behind the over-objective storyline quite the same way as they used to be able to. Uh, We now are able to see what most journalists think, and we're able to see it because of social media. Social media means now that people who write for The Washington Post, The New York Times, you name it, people that have supposedly straight up, straight down the middle news shows, they share their thoughts with us without any oversight. They share their opinions without it going through the uh, editorial massaging that I'm sure the news directors in all these places would want them to. And that means that they will say something or write something, more likely, that is obviously left-wing and deeply partisan. And then the next day, they'll have a piece up in a newspaper and they'll say, well, you see, now I'm, I'm just being a journalist. Before, that was just my opinion. And many of us look at them and just want to laugh because it doesn't work that way. Once you've established that you are biased against the Trump administration, then we know. We know that you're a leftist. We know that you're a progressive. There's no point in the pretense anymore unless you think that people will just forget. The New York Times has figured this out recently, that the power of a, quote, unbiased media is slipping out of their hands, or rather, the power of a narrative of an unbiased media. And I have always rejected this. You look at other countries, there are papers that are explicitly, clearly associated with one political party or another. It is unique, really, that America has this notion of not not just there are some journalists who are nonpartisan, but that journalism is a nonpartisan profession. I mean, this is laughable stuff. This is utterly preposterous. And yet here we are. How many decades have gone by with mass media growing and growing each year? And journalists still have this this game that they want to play. Well, The Times is trying to put the genie back in the bottle here by issuing New social media guidance for their newsroom. This just came out. Uh, this just came out last in the last few days, and they're more or less trying to get their journalists to hide uh, what they think. Here's part of their new guidance: "Quote, but social media presents potential risks for the Times. If our journalists are perceived as biased, or if they engage in editorializing on social media." they can undercut the credibility of the entire newsroom. We've always made clear that newsroom employees should avoid posting anything on social media that damages our reputation for neutrality and fairness. 
this memo offers more detailed guidelines. As I was saying, this seems almost to a lot of folks, I'm sure, like, Buck, this is internal New York Times stuff. Why should I care? But they're trying to hide from the new reality of all of us out here in you know, Consumerville, all of us who are the people who are reading and paying attention to what's going on in the country can see that Glenn Thrush at the New York Times despises this president. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times despises this president and everyone who works for them. We see it in their social media feeds. It's obvious. And so when you have the uh, sanctimonious and self-important journalists puff up their chest and say, well, you know, I work for a real news organization. We would never take sides in politics. We laugh because they're either idiots or they're liars or they're both. And they have finally, it seems to me, caught on that you can't have somebody who is establishing their bias on Twitter all day and then the next day writing a, quote, nonpartisan news article. That's just not how it works. Now, I disagree that the best scenario, if we're really going to talk about this state of journalism and and just the media in this country in general, I want everyone to be open about where they're coming from and what they believe. Facts are facts. Facts have to be accurate. But beyond that, I want everyone to have to say, this is what I think about this, or this is where I come from on this issue, unless it is a very straightforward news piece that doesn't lend itself to any of that. But but even then, there are, no matter what the story is, there are almost always some shades of partisanship that you will see in them. There are almost always some uh, places where you will get a real sense that this is something that is coming from a person who believes one thing or another. So this is going to follow at other, I assure you, this will follow at other news organizations too. Uh, You will see people who are trying to get their employees now to stop. I mean, I remember uh, a now uh, long since moved on Blaze uh, Blaze editor when I worked for theblaze.com tell me once well you know you you can't you can't be sharing your opinions on social media and I was like I'm an I'm an opinion writer I, I I write opinions man like that's what I do but he he had come from a supposedly big J journalism background and, and thought that it was necessary to remind me as a, as a straight up opinion person that I can't share opinions on social media. Anyway, he was wrong and lost that discussion. But the point is that this is a, an ongoing debate and it really does. It really does matter. This is why Trump has been so effective in battling with the media, I think, uh, in at least in large part, because he is speaking a truth that is self-evident once you see what people post, what these different journalists are posting on social media. And so this effort to come up with guidance and to change things and to to somehow uh, hide the obvious political opinions of those who are supposed to be writing stuff that are not uh, that are not in the realm of open opinion. Right. It's just nonsense. And I think it's doomed to fail. But it is the first time I've seen real clear evidence that these newsrooms are aware of the fact that they are they are burning credibility, that they are no longer in a place where they can just say, oh, you know, we're big J journalists. No, sorry. We can read and we can see what your big J journalists think about 
Trump in particular, but all issues, guns, climate, and they're spouting off and they're just all part of this leftist group think. And then they're like, well, you know, I'm just bringing you the facts the next day. doesn't work that way. So we'll see if they continue with this campaign to try and hide the or, or, or at least dampen and, uh, and limit the social media usage of their employees at the New York Times, Washington Post and others. But they can't hide from us, my friends. We know the truth. All right. We've got much more. I'll be back right after this break. Welcome back, team. I, I think that uh, the prosecutorial side of our government is w- one of the areas that uh, should get additional scrutiny in the days and uh, weeks, months, maybe even years ahead, because there have been a, a number of stories about very high-profile individuals, and Harvey Weinstein is just the one that comes to mind right now, but there are others as well who clearly had connections to those who were in prosecutors' offices and felt like they would capitalize on that at some point in the future. Right? You had Weinstein. There, there have been other incidences of this as well. And the undermining of justice that occurred under the Obama administration in a particularly egregious way, but the undermining of justice that went on then has ramifications that continue on now. And the notion that there are different sets of laws between the powerful and the powerless is something that must be combated because unless we have belief in the fairness of the system, then what are we to think when they come after one of us or when they decide that we have to listen to or obey even their most arcane and ridiculous laws? We have to have respect for the system. I'm thinking also about the Menendez trial here, which I should still note gets scant coverage, scant coverage, despite the fact that Menendez is a person of tremendous power and influence. He was he was a Senate Foreign Relations Committee member for a long time, longstanding senator from New Jersey, and his whole defense, well, I shouldn't say his whole defense, but the he was hoping that, first of all, the prosecutors would never bring charges against him, which turned out not to be the case because it was so egregious. But then his defense team went before a judge and wanted all 18 counts of corruption thrown out against him because he was saying that there was no uh, that, that this was spaced out over time, that because the acts that were taken, there seems to be a quid pro quo based on the facts here, right? This uh, eye doctor in Florida, uh, Melgan, I believe, is Dr. Melgan, uh, who had run this $90 million Medicare scam and went to prison himself, was calling upon Menendez for favors, And Menendez was delivering on favors, but because the nice stuff that Melgan was doing for Menendez was over a long period of time, it's because they were friends, not because there was corruption, right? Not because that there was any expectation. I mean, this is to suggest for all of us out there that Senator Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, you you don't hear that enough. Let me repeat, Democrat senator from New Jersey facing felony corruption charges. Menendez, because this was spaced out over time and he was buddies with Melgan, there's nothing that can be uh, there's nothing that can be called illicit and criminal 
of a, from his activities. I mean, this is just nonsensical. But this is the defense that's offered up. And I think when you look at what Menendez was really expecting here, and th- this brings me back to my original premise, because going for a judge and saying, yeah, this guy, there were quid pro quos. I did do things for him. I did favors for this donor. And it looks really shady. But, you know, we were friends, and it was over a long period of time. Menendez was assuming all along. He's not a dumb guy, and he's been in the game for quite some time. His assumption was that there would never be charges. I, I have friends who are prosecutors, and they always say that the, the, the best lawyer, the best lawyers out there, defense attorneys, make sure that the charges are never brought, right? that, that whenever there's an opportunity to avoid, because the charges themselves are destructive to reputation, to bank accounts. But then you see that prosecutorial discretion about which cases to bring and which not to bring that's one of the most fearsome powers that it really is the most fearsome power that the federal government has against its own citizens. Right. I mean, the, the single most fearsome thing the federal government has at its disposal is the United States military, but that's dealing with foreign enemies, at least primarily. I know it's enemies foreign and domestic, but uh, the reality is that when you have a prosecutor who is favorable towards you, and decides not to bring charges. That's the that's the greatest thing that you can possibly hope for. That's what real power is in Democrat circles. And you're seeing the opposite of that with the Trump administration and the special counsel right now. People refer to the swamp and they talk about the machinery. What I see happening here is that Trump has gotten on the wrong side of the swamp, of the machinery. And that means that they're going to go after him with everything they have and the best thing they have is a an investigation from within the DOJ. The stuff that they are trying to push right now about Facebook and Facebook ads, they're hoping that no one's paying particularly close attention. It's just flimsy. Oh, Russia ran some Facebook. Everybody's running Facebook ads. And Russia was running and and still runs a straight-up propaganda cable news channel known as RT. And Russia's been running that for quite some time, out in the open, has huge amounts of views on YouTube. And I should note, and you won't hear this from other people, RT, or Russia Today, the propaganda channel of the Kremlin, is overwhelmingly favorable, not toward what Republicans would generally like, but towards what Democrats like. Does, does Have you heard that from anybody? If you were to look at the cr- criticisms of policy on RT in this country, th- they're favorable to a leftist, progressive perspective, and they're critical of Republicans. They're critical of conservatism. But that open propaganda funded by the Kremlin, that wasn't a cause for concern until, well, it's still not a cause for concern. All we have to hear about is Russia and Trump in the election. But... This has always been why I'm, I'm worried, because Democrats are in charge of the federal machinery, the federal bureaucracy, and with that, much of the DOJ, much of the careerists within the DOJ. The legal profession has been largely corrupted based on legal education, based on what people learn in law school. The legal profession has been largely corrupted against individuals who have a... Uh, conservative point of view in favor of one for a progressive point of view, right? The law schools are now factories of liberalism, 
And that then stretches all the way up through the Department of Justice and through prosecutors' offices. And that ideological proclivity among the people that have the power of prosecution is deeply, uh, deeply unnerving. And we see it playing out, I believe, with the Trump administration now. We see this happening as this Russia investigation seeks to be the pinnacle of hashtag resistance. Um, so, you know, M- Menendez didn't have the didn't have the connections to avoid prosecution forever. But for a long time, he did. Weinstein didn't have the didn't have the connections to avoid prosecution forever. But for a long time, they looked the other way. For a long time, they didn't see enough there to go on. Judgment calls, my friends. And when those making those judgment calls are overwhelmingly of one political party and see the world in one way, we all need to be on guard. We all need to be aware of what that means for our country and for our future. So I'm putting out something of a warning here on this for all of us. Be aware of the politicization of prosecutors' offices. Be aware of how that is being used as a primary weapon against the Trump administration. And it's not just going to be the Russia part of this. Get ready for them to go after other people tied to Trump in whatever ways they can, particularly in blue states, New York, California, you name it. All right, coming up, we've got a whole lot more, team. Stay with me. So, team, you may not know this, but the transgender movement, in a way, is at war with the English language. I've talked to you before on this show, many times in fact, about how there are efforts underway to force people to use pronouns that do not correspond to the actual uh, sex of the individual, uh, as well as using plural pronouns now for the singular. Now, this has meant that in the case of the New York Times, there is a struggle between being woke as leftists who are socially aware or that are social justice warriors like to refer to themselves and being correct, because there is such a thing even still in the crazy world we live in as a difference between one individual and more than one individual, singular versus plural. But the Times doesn't want to offend anyone of the transgender movement. In fact, the Times wants to build upon and strengthen, fortify the transgender movement. So what do they do when they have people, individuals, who want to be referred to as they? Times, for now at least, has decided that they will use preferred pronouns, but only in the case of singular pronouns for individuals. So you can claim to be a he when you're a she or a she when you're a he, but you can't yet claim to be a they, at least in the New York Times. The Associated Press, I should note, has recently joined this battle, however, and this is how it is playing out right now. Uh, The AP has new gender guidelines And they put out a series of tweets uh, earlier in the week, or this was last week, where they were referring to, or where they said that gender refers to, quote, a person's social identity, while sex refers to biological characteristics. They also told writers to, quote, avoid, this is the Associated Press, everyone, okay? This is one of the biggest news organizations in the world, and it's supposed to be the objective source of news wires from which many people build their news stories. 
So this is at the root of all journalism. They want to, quote, avoid references to being born a boy or a girl. Uh, And they also said instead of using, quote, sex change or, quote, transition, writers are to use, quote, gender confirmation. Now, this is not a, a minor change, my friends. As I've told you before, the shift from illegal alien to illegal immigrant to undocumented immigrant has explicit political purposes, explicitly political purposes. It is meant to win the debate just by forcing the other side to use certain words. It is not just something you do to be polite. You have already submitted to the other side. If you use the terms that they insist you use, even at the risk or at the certainty of being incorrect, as is the case with, for example, undocumented immigrant, that's a nonsense That's a nonsense claim. They're documented. They just don't have legal status. They are illegal. And the term for that is an illegal alien because you are outside of the immigration system. But by changing the language, they change and, in fact, can win the debate. To say gender confirmation, that phrase is so loaded. This is the Associated Press now, everybody, that is making this determination. To say gender confirmation is to say that an individual who changes his or her gender was, in fact, uh, always that gender because it is just confirming what they were. Now, this ignores research that I have told you about on this show, that there are plenty of people who go through the transition process and are unhappy with it and actually would like to transition back. So what then is the surgery when you want to go back to your original sex? Is it deconfirmation You can see that the terms themselves are determining the debate. But really, as annoying and and outrageous as anything else in this is that the Associated Press has endorsed now, officially, has endorsed using the uh, plural pronouns for singular individuals, which even the New York Times, at least as of a few months ago when I talked to you about this, the New York Times wasn't yet willing to do that because it's just so clearly wrong and it, it is building into language something that is not accurate, right? That it's a question of one versus several individuals. Now the Associated Press is changing things up and they will not only use uh, the they or them for an individual, it will also consider usage of Z and Zer, uh, which are just made up. I mean, this is this is a it's a war on language, everybody. They are distorting and destroying the English language for the purposes of a political agenda for the transgender movement. And you can already see that a part of this is to make sure that there is no debate, because if you use these terms, you have already conceded. If you use the verbiage that is now required by the Associated Press, you are confirming that transgenderism is completely normal, that it is healthy, that it should be respected, that it should be celebrated. And there's also something inherently dishonest about creating style rules that are politically loaded, but that decide that reality no longer counts. Uh, For example, Dead naming is how they refer to any reference to someone's previous name before their transition. 
The most well-known example of this would be Caitlyn Jenner or Chelsea Manning, for example. Uh, Caitlyn Jenning used to be uh, Chris Jenning, and Chelsea Manning used to be Bradley Manning. To just bring up their former name, even to do so with full respect, is considered to be an affront. It's considered to be offensive. And if you can't, as a journalist, show all of the facts of somebody's life and background, you are making an enormous concession here. Because it's one thing to say that someone has changed their name and to call them that name out of respect, which I do. I will call uh, formerly Bradley, now Chelsea Manning. Uh, I don't want someone telling me because my middle name is Buck, but my first name is James. My middle name is actually Buckman, that I can't be called Buck, right? People should call me what I want to be called. But on my driver's license, it says James. And that's just a fact. And for me, for example, to tell a journalist that they could not ever write that my first name is James would be to deprive them of the right to share facts, And that's what they are doing as part of the transgender movement. They are changing language. They are instituting a loaded uh, political terminology that's meant to have implications well beyond the descriptive into the political sphere. And they are also just deciding that reality no longer matters. An individual can be plural and the language has to reflect the political proclivities of a movement That is literally making all this up as it goes along, and the Associated Press is going along with it. All right, we will get into much more right after this break. Stay with me. The Siege of Malta, Part 4. I wanted to continue with our deep dive into what happened in 1565, ending in this month, September. In fact, ending this week in 1565, a siege on the Mediterranean island of Malta, that had it been successful would have allowed the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate of the time, and the jihadist expansionism that it represented to strike into the heart of Europe itself and would have changed with it world history. When we last left the battle, we had the siege of Fort Elmo underway within the greater siege of Malta. In the Grand Harbor, there were a number of fortifications. Those fortifications included St. Michael's on Sanglea, the Fort of St. Angelo on Burgu. Those are two peninsulas that stick out into the Grand Harbor of Malta. And then at the base of Mount Skibaris, which is currently the site of the capital of Malta, Valletta, but at the base of Mount Skibaris was Fort St. Elmo. You had 40,000 or so Turkish troops, including the feared Janissary Corps, and also Spahis, the Turkish elite cavalry, along with an incredible array of heavy artillery, mortars, and basilisks, so named for the ancient dragon that fired incredibly heavy stone shot as a form of battering down fortifications. The Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent had broken down command between Piali Pasha as the Supreme Naval Commander and Mustafa Pasha as the Supreme Land Forces Commander for the Ottoman Turks, for the forces of Islam in this case. And then leading the defense of the island of Malta, you had Jean Parisot de Valette, about 500 of his Knights of St. John along with them, Knights Hospitaller, and then a corps of a few thousand European mercenaries and religious soldiers of fortune and the Maltese inhabitants and the levy of soldiers from them 
as well. They were completely surrounded and had, by May of 1565, set down for a protracted siege. The princes, dukes, and kings, the assorted royalty of Christendom at the time, had said that they would come to the aid of the Knights Hospitaller on the island of Malta, but Valette knew that there would be inaction among those nobles, as each would assume that the other would be the one to send reinforcements, and no one wanted to send their troops into a disastrous situation. So after the initial unopposed landing force of Ottoman troops seized control of the island of Malta, which is part of two islands, really, a small archipelago, including the island of Gozo to the north, and then you have the Straits of Malta, which separates it from Sicily, and then Sicily, of course, nearby to the southern tip of the boot of Italy. The Ottomans were quickly able to entrench themselves around the fortifications of the Knights of St. John, and when I last left you, we were discussing the Siege of St. Elmo. This was a pivotal moment in this incredibly important battle that I'm willing to bet very few, if any of you were taught in history class, I had to read about it on my own. But the decision to besiege St. Elmo instead of going for the main fortifications that the Knights of St. John had set up around the Grand Harbor of Malta meant that the Ottomans were, in effect, going for a limb of the resistance instead of the throat right away. And that limb, Fort St. Elmo, was much hardier than any of them had anticipated. As an aside, it's worth noting that St. Elmo is the Italian name for St. Erasmus of Formia, and St. Elmo, or St. Erasmus, was the patron saint of, that's right, you guessed it, sailors and navigators. So for an island like Malta, which was a shipping port with some people living on it, Naming one of your primary fortifications after that patron saint certainly seemed to make a whole deal of sense. And also, those of you who have an interest in naval navigation uh, in centuries past and present may be familiar with St. Elmo's Fire. No, I'm not referring to 80s teen heartthrob movie with Emilio Estevez in it. I'm talking about the phenomenon whereby... Electric fields in the air can create a bluish tinge around objects on ships at sea with an effect that gives it something of a neon glow in low-light conditions. That's St. Elmo's fire. But the fire at Fort St. Elmo from the Ottoman Turks cannons and various sharpshooters was withering. It was only because of the impressive fortifications and preparations by... Valette and his Knights of St. John that they were able to con continue what was a hopelessly outnumbered resistance at this one small fort. So let's discuss the fortification for a moment to get an understanding of just what was going on here. As written by Ernley Bradford in his excellent historical work, The Great Siege, quote, Mustafa's engineers and officers were sent forward to reconnoiter their position and report on it. It is a star fort, they said. There are four main salients, and the front which we have to storm is broken into a bastioned form. The cavalier, which rises to seaward, is separated by a ditch. There is also a small ravelin. Both these outworks are connected to the main fort, the one by a drawbridge and the other by a fixed bridge. It was a classic and old-fashioned type of fort, and it seemed likely to present few difficulties to the sappers, miners and siege artillery of the Turkish army. 
The greatest difficulty that confronted them, they reported, was the nature of the terrain. Mount Skibaris was a bleak bone of rock, affording no shelter or cover, nor even that matter any earth in which the troops might entrench. Now, that's particularly noteworthy because the Turks had been mastering siege warfare for centuries and had been successful, particularly in using engineers and sappers, those who will dig tunnels under the fortifications themselves and then usually light a fire or they could use gunpowder and cave in the wall, which would in turn, because it would take the land above it with it, uh, bring down the fortification. So this was an ancient medieval tactic, but the Turks brought to it gunpowder and greater technical know-how. Speaking of Turkish artillery, the weight of Turkish artillery, as written by Bradford, at this period of history, quote, far exceeded that of the Christian. The sultan's artillerymen and engineers in 40 years of land campaigns throughout Europe and the East had brought bombardment to a fine art. They had learned in siege upon siege the effects of different weapons and the techniques to be applied against varying fortresses. Two 60-pound culverns, 10 80-pounders, and an enormous basilisk firing solid shot weighing 160 pounds were brought up for the attack on St. Elmo. With such heavy weapons, the Turkish fire was slower than the Christian, but applied at short ranges, the battering power of this heavy iron and stone shot was enormous, end quote. So the Turks were bringing everything they had to bear on this one fort, which had no more than hundreds, perhaps in the mid to high hundreds of defenders in it. But those defenders had decided early on that they would die in place. And because it was across the Grand Harbor from the main fortifications on Birgu and Senglea, they were able, with the cover of darkness, to send limited reinforcements over the course of this siege within a siege of Fort St. Elmo. The Turks thought this would take days. It took weeks and took them deep into the summer. All the while, there was the fear in the Turkish minds and the hope in the Christian minds that there would be reinforcements coming. In fact, the Viceroy of Sicily had promised that that help was just a matter of weeks away. But Valette, the leader of the Knights of St. John, knew that he couldn't count on these promises. From a noble French family himself, he had quite an understanding of the perfidious nature of European nobility, always quick to claim they would defend Christendom when called upon, but much more concerned about their own domains, their treasuries, and their necks. The bombardment started around the 27th of May, and it went on for weeks. While the fort looked like a pile of rubble within days, the Knights of St. John and their mercenary and Maltese comrades-in-arms held out no matter what. And with the reinforcements they received from across the harbor at night, they were able to stretch this siege within a siege until the end of June. It wasn't until the 23rd of June after what seemed like an endless uh, pummeling by the Turkish artillery that the fort finally fell. But one important note along the way, this part of the Turkish campaign to take Malta also saw the arrival of of Dragut Reis, also known as Torgud, he was among the most famous pirates of the entire history of the Mediterranean. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the seas that he operated in, and he was a feared corsair who had been not just a thorn in the side, but a boogeyman, a nightmare story told to Christian children because of his 
habit of raiding the different Christian settlements and cities along the Mediterranean basin to grab slaves, slaves for the galleys of the ships and slaves for, yes, the harems and rock quarries of the sultan's domains. Dragut was also a scion of the perhaps more famous, although some historians dispute whether that was uh, should be considered to be the case, given how much more skilled Dragut was on the sea and in warfare. But Barbarossa was the mentor of Dragut, and Dragut was his successor once the famed pirate Barbarossa died. But, the, but Dragut knew Malta well. In fact, he had engaged in hostilities against the island, seizing slaves during previous seasons. And I should note that the seasonality of warfare at this time, especially on the high seas, was a major part of what was possible during a campaign. These ships, these galleys, these oared, rowed warships were not particularly sturdy in rough seas. And so once the winter storms came along, it became too dangerous to operate them on the Mediterranean. So you really only had the summer and into fall to complete this campaign in Malta. So time mattered for that reason. And time mattered because the viceroy of Sicily, Don Garcia, had promised and it was known that he was nearby and could have deployed thousands and thousands of troops as a relief force on Malta. So for weeks, Stretching from May into the end of June, the fort at St. Elmo held out. And then, with one great charge on June 23rd, the Turks, with the Janissary Corps assisting them, were able to take this first fortification at tremendous cost. It is estimated that five to 6,000 uh, Turkish dead resulted from taking this one fortification on the uh, peninsula beneath Mount Skibaris. And in the process, Dragut himself was mortally wounded. It was Dragut who understood the lines of fire and the necessary preparations and counter fortifications that had to be put in place to take St. Elmo. When he was lost, all military command passed to the bickering, squabbling, arrogant Pasha Piala and Pasha Mustafa. This one exchange following the fall of Fort St. Elmo became emblematic for the entire siege of Malta, as it were. It let both sides know that this would be a fight until the end, that there would be no quarter and no mercy, and the stakes, in many ways, the survival and future of the Christian world itself, were made clear to all. I'm going to take a quick break. Your team will be right back. Wanted to give you an update on the Las Vegas shooter investigation from uh, what came in over the weekend, team. I've been trying to piece together this uh, narrative of, of what exactly happened here since the very beginning. And one of the problems that came up was that there was this timeline that was changed three different times. And I said, this seems to me to be strange, because it was, and that there at, originally it was reported was over an hour when police were on the scene and the shooter, Paddock, had stopped shooting but could have opened up and shot again. That seemed to be tactically uh, at least worth more investigation and more inquiry, right? Well, I think we've seen a little bit of what the problem was with all that over the weekend. And these reports won't get nearly as much attention as some of the uh, earlier 
iterations of this whole story. But the Las Vegas casino um, seems to have had some problems in passing along this information. Uh, The uh, Mandalay Bay is owned by MGM Resorts International. It's a major corporation. It owns uh, enormously expensive properties, including others on the Strip and, and around the world. And from what I'm seeing here, there is the possibility that all of the confusion and the reasons for some of the conflicting earlier reports about the timeline are a function of the hotel and hotel security, because they would be the ones who would have known, for example, not police. When did Jesus Campos get up to the floor? When was he shot? What was the relay of information? How long did it take for Mandalay Bay Hotel Security to get information to their dispatch, because that's how they do it, not directly to police. And then how long did it take for the dispatch to get police zeroed in on where this mass shooting was taking place inside of the Mandalay Bay? I think we may have something of, a, of a, an answer to the earlier question I was posing about how can you get the timeline so wrong? It wasn't the police, from what I'm seeing here, that got the timeline wrong. It was the relay of information from the hotel to the police. And that's information that the police would not. The police wouldn't know what the response was initially. I mean, they're not like seizing records and subpoenaing it, right? They're just going to ask the hotel. When did the guy, when was he up there? It looks like the hotel got that information wrong. And police response was, in fact, very rapid. And uh, it is now also reported that police, that first responders to this massacre were specifically targeted once they were arriving on the scene of the uh, of the concert where all of the the victims were. Um, So it seems to me that some of the uh, disconnect with information comes from the casino side, from the hotel side of this equation and not from law enforcement. And assuming that this is correct now and that I'm I'm right with this uh, line of thinking, a lot of other things begin to fall into place, too. You're not going to get anywhere if you are an individual who is bringing a lawsuit, as many people will in this case, against the Las Vegas Police Department. Right. They're just arriving on the scene, putting their lives in jeopardy, trying to defuse a horrific situation and put their own lives at risk at the time. Uh, and you're, so you're not going to sue the Las Vegas Police Department if you were involved, if you were a victim of this incident or if you're somebody who because uh, there are lawsuits. I, we don't like to talk about this after an incident of this magnitude and gravity. We don't like to think of this in terms of what the uh, the legal payouts will be. But there are already active lawsuits that are underway right now because of this mass shooting and the MGM uh, hotel even though, sure, they want to be uh, at some level good citizens and, and to be as supportive of the investigation as possible, they've got to know at another level that whatever information they pass along to the police is information that would be part of discovery in any lawsuit against them for having faulty or inadequate security measures in place. That's where I think a lot of this is going to end up as we see more because it was just otherwise inexplicable. And honestly, I'm kicking myself a little bit because I should have picked up 
well, how is it possible the police would get the timeline wrong, uh, given how many days in the incident? Well, if there were if their primary source for part of the information was the hotel, uh, then you can see how there would initially be a problem of the relay of that information. And now you cause, and the, the police have no reason or rationale to give anything but the most uh, straightforward, honest, forthright information possible to the public in this circumstance. I, I'm not I'm not casting aspersions. I'm asking questions. But the hotel, you know, corporate headquarters for MGM, they are looking at this as well as uh, as a function of trying to be good citizens. They have to look at this as a legal liability question. There are, in fact, uh, a number of lawsuits that are underway, not just against the hotel, but the concert promoters are being sued. The Mandalay Bay is being sued. Paddock's estate, the shooter himself, his estate is being sued. And the makers of the bump stock, uh, Slide Fire, which is a company based in Texas, uh, they are being sued as well. So there's a lot of legal action going on behind the scenes with all of this. And I think that's why you may have had that initial problem with the timeline. I'm wondering if the timeline of response from the hotel side and what the hotel did and did not do may become a part of the suit, if it is not already. I'm going to guess that it already is. I haven't read through the lawsuits uh, against the Mandalay Bay. And that explains why there would be some slowness to give the information And that also could explain how there maybe was a problem with getting all of the information in and not just timely in a timely fashion, but to have it all be 100 percent accurate. So from what I'm seeing now, uh, there was no issue with either the law enforcement accuracy or law enforcement uh, timeline of events. It's the Mandalay Bay which is uh, the, the heart, which is the root of some of these problems and whether willfully or just through some degree of, of, you know, of the stress and, and just the whole situation coming together, uh, they gave some wrong information out there. So I wanted to make sure that I updated that because it's not fair if I'm going to ask questions about, Hey, hold on a second. How did law enforcement get this wrong? And then I find out, well, no law enforcement didn't really get it wrong. The hotel told them that, their security officer was shot at a different time from when he was actually shot. That makes a big difference in all of this. Uh, And with all these lawsuits pending, I think we have our answer as to how there was a uh, problem with some of the information coming from the hotel side. So still really not much about the motive. And I think people are going to be asking a lot of questions about uh, the hotel, the Mandalay Bay has much more security in place to protect its casino and the chips on the floor than its actual uh, hotel guests, that's a whole separate concern and or a whole separate conversation. Uh, but we'll get into that another time. Stay with me, team. I'll be right back. So I had a house guest this past weekend, team, and we had uh, quite a lot of fun. So Molly's family, her parents have a rescue dog. Um, she actually rescued it from the street from a cardboard box. And his name is Harold, and he is a handsome and regal fellow. He is a mix of a pit bull and a boxer. So unlike what I'm used to here in New York City and what I grew up with, which was a Boston Terrier, which I have to say, Boston Terriers have a tremendous amount of personality in a small package. And now my family here, my parents, have a French bulldog, 
which are just little furry love bugs. French bulldogs are great dogs for the city. They're incredibly popular, especially in New York. And I saw a lot when I was in L.A. too. But Harold, who is a sweetheart, who, who thinks that he's a lap dog, even though he weighs about 60, 65 pounds. Uh, Har- Harold is a dog that if you were in a dark alley and you heard something go crack, you'd be happy if you had him at your side on a leash because uh, he is a he is a strong and uh, when he wants to be fierce little fellow. But we had a lot of fun. I took him for all kinds of walks, and it was difficult to uh, have him actually sleeping right next to me in the bed, but that is his preferred, as I found out when he woke me up at 3 o'clock in the morning, that is his preferred uh, place. He does not like the couch. He does not like the floor. He likes the bed, which I'm pretty sure uh, is not the way that it's supposed to go if you're going to train your dog, but, you know, it is what it is. I actually saw for brunch a dear friend of mine. I know, brunch, right? You're listening to a guy who does a show out of New York City. What can I tell you? Uh, and she is a is like a world-class dog trainer herself, and she has a couple of dogs, and she has a new baby and her husband, and we were all hanging out together and catching up. Uh, and I was telling her about some of the things that I did with the Pitbull Boxer mix named Harold, over the weekend and she said well that's so cute and great except you're not really you're reinforcing some not so great habits for him if you want him to behave a certain way you know that's maybe not the way you want to do things like letting him sleep in the bed uh, you know i don't know i wish i had one of those dogs that you could give it a command and it was like ready to do open heart surgery for you or something like it's the most highly trained dog in the world but I've just gotten used to if a dog is, is sweet and, and likes to uh, give everybody lots of affection and love, that's all I really care about. So he, we had a lot of fun with him. It's a lot of dog for New York City. For people who say, oh, I only like big dogs, uh, then you should probably not ever live in a major city where you're going to be in an apartment because it's, it's snug having, having 60 plus pounds of a dog in an urban environment. And just one more thing on the dogs. I stopped by a dog with my friends who had two dogs and their baby. So they had their dogs with them. I didn't have Harold with me at the time. He was with Molly. Uh, But I stopped by a dog Halloween costume contest. I know everybody. This is New York City, right? Everyone's showing up with their matcha green tea lattes after their transcendental meditation classes on Sunday. And then they're going to the park for the dog Halloween costume contest. I just thought it was funny because there was a little dog. I couldn't tell what it was, but he had like a a suit on. You know, he was a dog in a a suit, a little dog suit. Um, And it almost looked like it was a black tie for a a dog. And they announced him over the speaker as, and now Harvey Weinstein. And everyone went, boo. (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's. Pretty much what I would expect for a dog entrant named Harvey Weinstein uh, trying to capitalize on the current news cycle here for the contest. I think there was some money at stake in this contest, but there was all kinds of cute stuff. There was a dog in a Sherlock Holmes costume that I thought was was particularly amazing. So a lot of dog stuff this weekend, which is making me think that it's probably time. Uh, we we In a sense, we didn't foster a dog this weekend. We babysat a dog this weekend, but... Uh, I, I can handle a dog, but I think for my purposes, uh, it's probably going to have to be 30 pounds and below. It's just over 60 is a lot. It's a lot for New York City. Uh, if I had more land and more room, well, then that would be different. Uh, I wanted to also uh, close up today. I know I'm down in, in D.C., but as part of making sure like I'm 
connected with the team, I wanted to give you some of Team Buck Speaks. Remember, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Please do click like or follow on the page when you go to it. And then you can write me messages. And you can also talk to other members of the team. And you can read our posts there throughout the day. Jeffrey writes in, uh, Hi, Buck. I just finished The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. An informative one-sitting read. Thought you might like it. Well, Jeffrey, sounds right up my alley. I will definitely go check it out. I'll add it to my, my literal pile of to read books that I have at home, which maybe I should take a photo of and just share that um, because I've got a good pile going. Uh, I, my favorite book on the issue of, or the subject of fossil fuels is Daniel Yergin's The Prize. It's a great book. Uh, if you want to just get a, a really good soup to nuts overview history of fossil fuel, uh, starting with the, well, going all the way back to the beginning of, of the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania, believe it or not, that's where it really got going, and then Texas, and then eventually made its way over to the Middle East. But if you want to have a pretty good working grasp of that, The Prize is a great, great book. And all right, I knew we'd get some on this. I, I corrected myself on air, but nonetheless, I said something wrong about firearms and World War II history. And with with this team, you do that at your peril. And I knew that. So I get a note here from John, who's, who's being very helpful and, and uh, very kind about it. Uh, he writes in subject, George Patton's pistols. Uh, hi, Buck. Shields high. My first attempt to converse with you. I write this on Sunday while listening to the podcast of Friday show. As an avid student of arms and history, I was amused at all the brouhaha over the gun grips he wore during World War Two. Old George was quite the enthusiastic all his life, having completed in the or competed in the pentathlon and I believe the 1912 Olympic Games. He was very good with both pistol and saber. He designed the last issue model of cavalry saber for the U.S. Army. In any case, there were three main pistols he was pictured wearing during the war. Patton's favorite was probably the Colt Single Action Army or Peacemaker with a five and a half inch barrel full engraving and nickel plating, 45 caliber, as well as the ivory grips. The Peacemaker's grips were smooth on the right panel with a gold inlaid initials monogram GSP. The left panel features a mantled eagle and two notches up by the trigger guard. Uh, this was the gun he used to kill two uh, Villanistas during Pershing's punitive expedition into Mexico. The second gun on his belt, an S.D. Myers full general's issue leather tunnel, was a blue Smith & Wesson registered magnum with an N-frame sized 357 magnum with a three and a half inch barrel, factory grip adapter and ivory stocks, smoothed with the initials on the right panel. Lastly, a government issued piece or two, uh, a Colt model 1903 and 1908 semi-auto pistols blued in 32 caliber ACP and 380 ACP, respectively, the pocket hammerless model. Only difference between them being caliber. Uh, this is incredible. I mean, the information that John has here, he keeps going, by the way. Um, but there you have it. There's more here. Uh, thanks for all your work, Buck and Shields High. John, thank you for a museum-worthy description of General Patton's uh, sidearms over the course of World War II. Very much appreciated. And now we get someone writing in about a dog. Alice, uh, with the following. Uh, Just listened to Friday's podcast and had to share my recent dog story. A friend who works for a local rescue 
sent me photos of dogs from a uh, South Carolina kill shelter who had 24 hours before they were euthanized. I agreed to foster an eight-month-old lab puppy. When the transport arrived in Vermont, outbounded a big black lab pit bull mix. It was a long ride home, wondering if he'd kill our cats, since I've always been a never-pit person. He was a mess. So skinny you could see every bone, covered with bites and scratches, not neutered, although he's two years old, full of worms and tested heartworm positive, and we completely fell in love with him. Three weeks later, he's put on a good deal of weight and is glossy, happy, and is a great dog. He stays by my side everywhere, is gentle with cats, likes humans and other dogs. Tomorrow, he goes in for his series of heartworm treatments. If he survives, we will officially make him part of our family and formally adopt him. Big heart from Alice. Well, Alice... That is the best story that I have read in quite a while. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, fingers crossed, and I'll say a prayer. Uh, forget fingers crossed. I'll say a prayer for uh, your the new member, the soon-to-be newest member, I'm sure, of your family. And uh, God bless for adopting and, and saving uh, that dog. And I'm sure it's going to enrich your life and your family's life uh, lives along with it. So... Congrats, and that is awesome. And with that, from D.C., the Freedom Hut D.C., until tomorrow, my friends, shield tie.